The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 111 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize all opinions expressed on the show are my own and not my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment. And I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. Nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, remind our listeners, you can go online at the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So, my uh, partner in crime, an amazing co-host of Task Force 7 Radio, Andy Bonello, hosted a great show last week with a very technical and very talented Frank Kim, the CEO of ThinkSec. And what an honor it was to have Frank on TF7 Radio. I mean, his experience as an advisor and as a consultant for CISOs across many different verticals made him the perfect tier one guest right here on The Voice of Cybersecurity. And it made for such a great show last week especially for senior executives or people who are aspiring to be a senior executive in the cybersecurity space. So Kim dove into all things cybersecurity and he talked about how CISOs measure the success of their programs and how security leaders communicate their current posture to boards and executive leadership committees, which is always very important. We talk about this stuff a lot on the show. He also talked about how CISOs build their business cases to reflect their cybersecurity strategies. And of course, the success of that conversation always pivots on the hope that you have the correct strategy in place to begin with. (laughs) So Kim went on to unpack what metrics make sense for different organizations. It's important, you've worked in different sectors and different size companies and you have different products and services, so it's a different message. And the metrics need to conform to your business and also how to set goals around the pillars of your strategy and how CISOs should use cybersecurity to assist their organizations with their digital transformation efforts. So if you listen to my good friend and tier one expert, William Beer on episode number 36, you would know all about enabling digital transformation through cybersecurity, which is very important. So it was a great show folks on a a variety of different levels. It was very informative and I guarantee you'll walk away more knowledgeable about the cybersecurity C-suite than you were before listening to the show. So that's tier one CISO advisory consultant and CEO of ThinkSec, Frank Kim, on last week's episode. That's episode number 110 of Task Force 7 Radio. So if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback. 
Just go to our new TF7 Radio site at www.tf7radio.com and hit the episode tab at the top of the homepage, and you can find all the TF7 Radio episodes at your fingertips. You can also search our guest library, which is the most impressive list of some of the most prolific cybersecurity professionals in the world. And of course, we have our news section as well, where you can check out all the latest cybersecurity news and news on Task Force 7 Radio. And you can even write comments on the different news articles and topics that we're talking about and interact with other TF7 radio listeners, which is always a lot of fun. So we're on at least a dozen different playback mediums now. We've made it super simple for you to find them all. Just hit the subscribe button at the top right of the homepage and you'll see your entire selection of playback mediums. And most importantly, you can subscribe to our show right from the TF7 radio website, which is the best way to stay connected to the TF7 family. This way you'll get the TF7 radio updates right from the site. As the site gets more robust, you'll get notified about TF7 extras and encore episodes like the one we just posted on November 20th. That was episode number 85, former NSA officer on the dangers of information ops, which was a great show. And you'll get notifications about other Task Force 7 radio news and events and information on the upcoming TF7 network too. So check us out folks, www.tf7radio.com to hear any of our episodes at your convenience 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. Well, this is it. The cybersecurity radio show of all cybersecurity radio shows has finally arrived, folks. Tonight, we're going to arguably have the most sought-after cybersecurity guest on the planet with us, the former director of the National Security Agency and the former commander of the United States Cyber Command, Admiral Michael Rogers is going to be right here on Task Force 7 Radio with us this evening. Now, most people are familiar with the NSA and its intelligence responsibilities, but just in case, I want to go over a little bit with everyone. The National Security Agency, Central Security Service, leads the United States government in cryptology that encompasses both signals intelligence and information assurance, now commonly referred to as cybersecurity in many spaces. Uh, they do this through these information insurance products and services and enable computer network operations. That's CNO. You heard us talk about that a lot, uh, especially in the, uh, the Encore episode that I posted uh, previously and mentioned. I think it was episode number 36. In order to gain a decision advantage for the nation and our allies under all circumstances. So the position as the director of the NSA would put this person in the know and have access to the world's cybersecurity uh, secrets. So that's pretty incredible. So Admiral Rogers also served as the commander of the U.S. Cyber Command. Now, as commander of U.S. Cybercom, Admiral Rogers had the mission to direct, synchronize, and coordinate cyberspace planning and operations to defend and advance United States national interest in collaboration with all of our domestic and international partners. So, Previously, the Secretary of Defense directed the commander of U.S. Strategic Command to establish a sub-unified command called United States Cyber Command, or U.S. Cybercom. So full operational capability of this sub-unified command was achieved on October 31, 2010, and then President Donald Trump announced on August 18, 2017, his decision to accept Defense Secretary James Mattis' recommendation to elevate U.S. Cybercom from a sub-unified command to a unified combatant command responsible for all United States Department of Defense cyberspace operations. So this decision to elevate U.S. Cybercom was seen as 
recognition of the growing centrality of cyberspace and cybersecurity to U.S. national security and acknowledgement of the changing nature of warfare in the role that cybersecurity has in it. So that's a little background on the NSA and the U.S. Cybercom. So Admiral Rogers, let's talk about him for a little bit. He retired from the U.S. Navy in 2018 after nearly 37 years of naval service, rising to the rank of a four-star admiral. He culminated his career with a four-plus-year tour as commander, U.S. Cyber Command, and director of the National Security Agency, creating the DOD's then newest large warfighting organization and running the U.S. government's largest intelligence organization. So in these roles, he worked with the leadership of the United States government, the Department of Defense, and the U.S. intelligence community, as well as their international counterparts in the conduct of cyber and intelligence activity across the globe. He also assisted in the development of national and international policy with respect to cyber, intelligence, data, privacy, and technology, including extensive work with corporate leadership in the finance, IT, telecommunications, and technology sectors. Admiral Rogers is currently supporting companies in the private sector, serving as a member of various boards of directors or advisory boards, or acting as a senior advisor for some companies. He also speaks globally to various businesses and academic groups and is working internationally in the cyber and national security arenas. He is a senior fellow and adjunct professor with Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management Public-Private Initiative and a member of the advisory boards of the Australian-American Leadership Dialogue, NATO's Cooperative Cyber Defense Center of Excellence, and Auburn University's McCrary Institute for Cyber and Critical Infrastructure Security. He is also a member of the United States Naval Institute Board of Directors and works with the Joint Staff and National Defense University in the mentoring and professional development of DOD flag and general officers. So it is my distinct pleasure to welcome to the show the former head of the National Security Agency and the former head of the United States Cyber Command, Admiral Michael Rogers. Admiral, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Hey, thanks, George. Thanks, Andy. Hey, it's really excited to I'm really excited to have you here with us. I mean, um, we got a lot to talk about on the show, and we're going to talk about a variety of different topics uh, for this episode. But in the first segment, I want to skip around a little bit and, and talk sure. a little bit about Cyber Command and, and what you did in the government. And then in the second uh, segment, we'll get to China. And then the third segment, we'll talk a little bit about cyber risk as a national security threat. But first off, I have to ask you, what was it like to lead U.S. Cyber Command? What was that experience like for you? Well, first and foremost, it was an honor. I mean, you know, when I started my journey in uniform, I did it for 37 years. I had no clue that I would ultimately wind up as a four-star admiral and that I would get the opportunity to work with such amazing men and women and to do something that I thought was relevant and important for the nation. So that's number one. Number two, as a leader, I love the fact that within the Department of Defense framework, Cyber Command represented something new, something different. And I loved the challenge of, so how do you create something new in a rather, uh, don't get me wrong, DOD, incredibly highly motivated professionals focused on the mission, do great things for our nation. But you can't deny that at times it can be a bit of a bureaucracy. So you're trying to create something new in this kind of hierarchical bureaucratic framework. At the same time, you are not, unlike the normally we, we do things, for example, let's say we build a new aircraft carrier, we, we create a new fighter squadron. We normally build all the resources, train all the individuals, 
And then we say, okay, now it's ready to be used. Cyber Command, one of the greatest challenges, but also was one of the things that I, I loved the tempo and it really made it interesting was we used it as we built it, very unusual in the DOD. So there was always this challenge of, hey, we're trying to create something for the future that takes time to get the resources, to generate, acquire, uh, create the capabilities that you need to train those men and women, to get those men and women. And at the same time where you're doing all that, you're reminded, hey, we got a mission and we got to do it every day. So we can't wait. We can't do the normal approach to doing business. So it, it was kind of that challenge about creating and doing simultaneously. <laughs> and with these great men and women, that's the part I really loved. That was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work. Well, thank you but for your was, service. I, I love the challenge. Thank you for your service. I appreciate you. And, and tell us what you're doing now. What are you doing now since you left the government? So uh, as I left government, as I said, I, I uh, served as a naval officer for approximately 37 years. Uh, I've been out for about 18 months. Uh, I decided first and foremost, party number one when I departed was I got to get some sleep and spend <laughs> some time with my wife. I just felt that I had you know, let the family go a little bit, and that's not fair to them. Um, once I completed those two very important things, uh, don't underestimate the power of, of some good sleep. I, I had not known that for <laughs> several <laughs> years. So it was great to be able to experience it again. Um, the, the next thing for me was, hey, look, what do you think is going to create a framework? Think about this new world. And I came to several conclusions. Number one, I didn't want to work for just one entity. Nothing wrong with that. But for me, I thought I want more control over time. And time is the most important variable for me, not money. Number two, Hey, you got to learn about the outside world. You lived in a bit of a cocoon for 37 years, as you know, meaningful as that life was for me, is is as relevant and as important as I thought it was for me. There's a lot of skills I have to learn, a lot of things I don't, I'm not smart about. So I thought build a a structure, if you will, that gives you a measure of flexibility and get, give you some experience before you really start to make the big bets on, hey, this is what I want to do. Um, I thought, hey, see if you can push yourself outside of the government and the Department of Defense kind of world that you came from. So when it's all said and done, I do a portfolio of things from teaching at Northwestern University to, you know, speaking globally on cybersecurity, geopolitics and leadership to being on board of directors or advisory boards for uh, companies to working with a global advisory firm, global law firm, and trying to get a little bit smarter about money, didn't know much about it. So I thought, hey, I'd like to get a little bit smarter about venture capital and just see what that's like. Because uh, I love the idea of always learning in life. I just think that learning is a lifelong voyage and you want to keep pushing yourself to learn new things. Wow. So what were the top concerns that you had when you left the government as they relate to cybersecurity and, and national security in the United States? So really two. The first was I thought to myself, many of our potential adversaries are very focused on conflict in what we call the gray zone. This idea of attempting to gain advantage against the United States, but doing it in a way that doesn't trip an armed response from the United States. So gaining advantage, but trying to do it in a way that keeps a lid on things, so to speak. And you see that playing out in hybrid warfare, in the informational dynamic that you see going on, the use of cyber, the use of disinformation. Those are all techniques. The Russians have gotten the most attention, but they're not the only ones doing it. That are designed to create advantage for them, but at the same time, not 
trigger a response, if you will, from us. And I just thought to myself, we've got to think about what it means to compete in this kind of environment because it's not an environment that we traditionally in the United States from a national security framework, that wasn't the framework that we generally generally used. It, it's different from the counterinsurgency kind of work we've been doing in the post 9-11 environment. It's traditional, it's different from the traditional past kind of great nation uh, uh, competition kinds of things. So that was number one. Number two was I thought we had not fully thought through what are the national security implications in the 21st century with a digital economy? What are the national security challenges of technology? I thought we were still looking at this through a very narrow prism. And I didn't think, for example, we were accounting enough for the economic impacts of some of these technologies that I thought also were going to, that economic activity was also going to have a huge impact on national security. And traditionally within the government, we often differentiate between this idea of national security and we treat economics, if you will, or economic competition as something separate. My view is in the world of the 21st century, the two are very intertwined. You, you can't do the one without thinking about the other. So you, you spent a, a great deal of time in, in the United States military and the government, and then you've been out now for only 18 months. How has your time in the private sector changed your views after you came out of the government, if at all? And how, you know, how has being not in the government, but in the private sector influenced your opinions about things uh, in any way? So first, I, I find the description that one is good and one is bad. One is fast and one is slow is incredibly simplistic and inaccurate. Um, my view is they are both broadly, they're both cultures that have incredible strengths, but they also have challenges. That the, the sweet spot we need to be looking for is how do we bring these two worlds together? Why vice saying one is good and one is bad. I, I have just not found that to be the case. The, the common thing I found is both worlds have some really great people. Both worlds are very focused on mission. Now, they tend to, to define mission a little differently sometimes. And the metrics of success that they use to assess their effectiveness in executing that mission are often different. But the fundamental concepts of hard work, the importance of people, I found that to be true in both of these worlds. So one of the things that we talk about a lot on this show is election security. And we talk about our election mm -hmm. platforms and the security around them and the meddling that has been in the news quite often. And so I'd like to ask, you know, what, what can we do about election meddling? And are we doing enough right now, in your opinion? So, so first, I think there's two dynamics we need to look at. The first is the protection of the traditional mechanisms through which we execute an election. That's voting databases. That's the actual machines and capabilities that we use. Right. That is very much a, a traditional, and traditional is probably a poor word choice, but that's very much a, a security challenge. I think we have the means as well as the understanding to do. The harder challenge and the second part of security associated with elections to me is how do we address this information? This attempts by external parties, although you see some internal parties starting to do this as well, but actors who are interested 
in using information as a vehicle to shape perception, to potentially impact the way people perceive things that then potentially has an impact. And well, if you have X perception, that will generally drive you to vote in a certain particular way. Um, that's the harder challenge because you're trying to address this use of information by obscuring identity and also by quite frankly, false or misleading inaccurate information. And you're trying, and that's all being done within a democratic society framework in which freedom of expression and the power of the First Amendment is so central to our very view of ourselves as a society. That's the hard one. And that's, I think the challenge there is going to be, there's going to be both a, a, a need for people to stop and think about what they're reading, what they're seeing, what they're hearing, and starting to ask themselves, hey, is this accurate just because I see it in one source? Do I automatically accept it? What are some of the skills that we need to acquire to learn to be a little smarter, um, a little more proficient, if you will, in a world in which people are constantly throwing inaccurate information at us and often hiding their identities when they're doing it. So they, they want you to believe that it's person or organization X when the reality is it's person Y from nation state Z. I mean, it's, this is the nature of the world we're living in. And it's that second dynamic that I think is the much tougher one in our society. So this is not something that we talk about a lot on this show, but I have to take advantage of you of you being here. I, I, I want to ask you, what's been the impact of the Snowden leaks in the government that you've seen? So clearly there was a, a mission impact, a compromise of information that was incredibly sensitive and had a direct impact on our ability to execute our mission to both help secure and defend the nation as well as help secure and defend, for example, troops on the battlefield in Afghanistan. It, you saw we lost capability. You saw actors, threats, groups who became aware through the disclosures of some of our capabilities who then started changing the way they communicated with a view towards stopping our ability to, to penetrate, so to speak. Secondly, um, I think then you also had a significant issue associated with trust. I thought there was so much inaccurate information and in some ways reporting on this topic, it just ended up sowing a, a lot of distrust that I thought wasn't accurate, wasn't justified. Now, I'm not trying to argue that the National Security Agency or the U.S. government is perfect. That's not my point. But one point I would always make is even after all of this, there is no, no, despite the multiple independent reviews that were held, there was no violation of the legal framework of this nation. Now you can disagree with that framework. You can say, hey, look, I don't like the fact that the law allows you to do this, but that's not the way this was framed initially. Initially, this was framed as, this is some massive, unwarranted, unregulated surveillance of US persons, and that is not accurate. So you mentioned before that we're moving into this digital age and we have, you know, how, what, are, what the challenges are moving into the digital future. How can we change the dynamic of being a technological world leader as it relates to all these new emerging technologies that are coming out like 5G and quantum computing, AI? How does that work? 
So what are the challenges? I think many people, I can't speak for all, I, in my experience, I find many people are somewhat intimidated by technology and will use the fact that it, that it is or is framed as a technical issue as an excuse then to say, I, that's not my background. I don't do technology. I don't have particular experience in technology. And so from my experience, at times I watched some incredibly motivated and professional individuals kind of just say, oh, that's not my thing. I'm, I'm not going to do it. I'm not comfortable in it. And my thought always was, look, focus less on the technology and the fact that at its heart, the core part of many of these issues is it's all about assessing risk. And my view is most leaders I've ever dealt with, whether it was in the government or in the private sector, they are very comfortable about discussions about risk. But if you try to have the same discussion within the framework of technology, oftentimes you get a very different result. Hey, I just don't understand technology. I don't use it all that much. I'm not comfortable with it. I'm not familiar with it. I thought one of the big things is, could we use a frame of reference here that people understand more readily, not that there isn't a technical aspect of much of this. I'm not trying to pretend there isn't, but at times I've watched individuals I thought try to hide behind technology or in some ways, to be honest, you know, just blow smoke up other people because I thought, ah, come on, you're just trying to intimidate and frame this in a way that nobody's really going to question you. You know, it's interesting that you say that. What, what do you, what, in your experience, what do you think happens when you have a senior leader that speaks from a common lexicon of risk as opposed to a senior leader who speaks from a, a lexicon of technology, right? And comes in with a verbiage that is very technical to a board, let's, let's say, for instance, that really is more familiar with, with risk than it is technology, like you just said. What do you think? Is, you know, I just think what happens is you start to see some people tune out. It, it, it's kind of funny. I have never, and now I find, as I said, you know, I've been out for about coming up on 18 months. I find myself now participating on, I'm, I'm a board member in several organizations. And one of the things that strikes me is I have never, ever heard a board individual or an organization as a whole say, you know, I really have no experience. I've never been a chief financial officer. I, I've never really worked uh, money. I'm just not really comfortable talking money. I have never heard a board say that. Everybody seems to be comfortable talking about money writ large, even if they have no direct experience. On the other hand, I hear boards all the time say, I have no direct experience in technology. I'm just not really comfortable talking about this. And I just think, oh, come on, we can't work like this in the 21st century, you guys. Right. Right. No, I see it as I see it as a big problem too. And we all talk about what kind of skills chief information security officers need to speak to a board and to relate to a board and to communicate with them. And so we always have these big debates on what kind of uh, you know how we you know if we should be using metrics, if we should use stories, you know, and, and what those briefings should look like. And I think the common I think consensus is that when you speak from a common lexicon of risk and you're able to rally the board and the executive committees around that risk conversation, you get to a place where you need to be and you'll be able to move the dial forward. And, 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 yeah, because I always thought at its heart, look, the role of a CIO or CISO, you have been given a specific mission area, in this case, IT or cybersecurity, and your job is within that specific mission area to mitigate risk to an acceptable level. That, that's what you're doing for your company. 
And I say mitigate because, you know, one of the things I remind people is if you want 100% certainty that you will never have a cyber issue, then you need to go back to the Stone Age because right. <laughs> the probability that nothing is ever going to happen is very low. So that shouldn't be, I always thought that shouldn't be the criteria. On the other hand, I also thought CIOs and CISOs, look, you're, and I had to do this in a form of jobs, you know, as I'm dealing with presidents and cabinet secretaries in Congress and uh, both here in the United States and around the world, most of them are not, quote, technical experts. They weren't necessarily comfortable in technology. I used to tell the teams that I was a part of, look, our job is to take our knowledge and insights and frame it in a context and in a way that the audience that we're dealing with finds it relevant, comprehensible, and we're doing it in a way that's generating outcomes. It's not to talk like we're talking amongst ourselves when we're back in our organization. It's to talk in a way they understand. Because remember, in the end, it's all about generating outcomes. And if we can't put the challenge sets that we're dealing with in their name in a way that they can understand, we're not going to be effective. All right, folks, we got to transition to commercial break, but stick with us. China's up next here on this episode of Task Force 7 Radio. Hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family on your favorite social media site. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7. That's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause with some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with the former head of U.S. Cyber Command, Admiral Michael Rogers. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. 
It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at bountymail.com. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the former head of U.S. Cyber Command, Admiral Michael Rogers. So, Admiral, in our second segment today, I want to focus on what some people consider to be the biggest threat to the national security of the United States, and, and that is China. Now, I don't feel like it gets enough attention. I really don't. I feel that many people here in the United States don't really know that China has engaged in a very focused and disciplined long-term strategy to supplant the United States as the world's sole superpower. And they have seemingly have dedicated themselves to do everything in their power to in- ensure that this happens, including stealing our RIP, which we talk about all the time on this show. Uh, they also do other things outside the cybersecurity space, like manipulating our, uh, their currency and doubling and tripling the size of their military, investing in emerging markets in places like Africa and South America to broaden their global influence, even as when people like the United States are giving them aid and they're actually giving more aid to other countries than they're receiving which seems so deceptive to me. Um, you know, just recently, I was just reading, I think it was out in June, Forbes magazine put out, and it seems like in a blink of an eye, while no one was looking, the Chinese now have 119 companies in the global Fortune 500, and that's right at par with the United States, who has about 121 companies in the global uh, Fortune 500. So their cyber offensive and defensive efforts are a major pillar of their overall strategy. How do we educate the public on this threat and what do we need to do differently? So first I'd argue you need to step back and kind of look at China in terms of 
how is it a little different than some of the challenges that we've dealt with before and how is it similar in some ways? And so how are some of the strategies we've used in the past could be effective versus how are some of the strategies we've used in the past not going to be effective, I think. So the first is what makes China so challenging broadly, not in terms of how they do the things they're doing, but the last time we had a, a, a near competitor who we viewed as a potential adversary, really the, the, in terms of a nation state, the Soviet Union, they were largely a political, diplomatic, and a military challenge. They were never an economic challenge. They were never going to surpass the United States economically. They didn't have the global economic impact or capabilities that we had. They never had those kinds of things as options. Fast forward now, and you look at China. China also represents a significant diplomatic, political, and military challenge. But what makes it so different is it combines all of that with this significant economic capability. That's what makes it so different from some of the challenges we've dealt with before. We have not had a near peer economically who was also a, a, such a competitor or potential adversary. And I say potential because look, I, I don't want anybody to assume that China has to be in it. Even though I disagree with what they're doing, even though I, I have significant qualms about the way they're doing it, I, I would prefer not to automatically uh, default to, well, they have to be an enemy. That, that takes us down a road I'm, I'm not sure that is in our nation's best interest. Don't get me wrong, we want to compete with them and we want to stand up for those values that we believe represent our society and the broad, broader society of the societies of the world around us. So we want to stand up for what we believe in, but I don't want to automatically default to China as an enemy. That also goes to the idea, you hear some people talking about, well, are we re-entering another Cold War scenario? Is the relationship between the United States and China going to be somewhat similar to the relationship between the United States and the Soviets during the Cold War? Are, are we entering a new Cold War? I, I would say that's not a good analogy. Rather, I would say we are now competing against a nation state who has a range of capabilities that we have not had to deal with before. They combine this political, diplomatic, military, and economic might in a way that we haven't had to deal with before. We've never really faced this recently. And I say recently, literally in the lives of any American who's living today, we've never had a, a potential adversary who had this full, such a full range of capabilities. So I would argue, going back to the Cold War, arguing that the answer is a containment um, strategy, if you will, that is a very, from my opinion, it's a very flawed methodology. It's got low probability of success. And I also think it tends to cast them in, in a diametric, hey, they're an enemy. And I just don't think that's the way to go about doing it. Rather, I think we need to step back and ask ourselves, so what is it that is, what powers this strategy? What are the Chinese trying to achieve? And I would argue broadly that they've come to the conclusion that what gave the West its advantage over the last century or so, certainly since the, the post-World War II arena, is that it was the West that powered this economic growth, that gave the West this military advantage, that then between the economic and the military piece translated into this significant diplomatic and political power, that the Chinese view is in the 21st century, in order for us, China, to regain what they believe is their rightful position in the world, we need to develop the key technologies of the 21st century economies 
Secondly, another thing they look back on it is, hey, the West not only developed the technology, but then they got the global standards organizations to adopt that technology and then use it as the standard for the rest of the world. The second component when, the, when China looks at the technology piece is not only do they want to develop the technology in the digital age, they want to get the global standard bodies to adopt their technology as the standard for the world. And then lastly, and it goes to your point about the big companies. I think the other thing that China looked at is not only did the West develop this technology and then get it adopted by the global standard, by the global standard bodies, as if you will, the building block for the entire world. The West then developed these companies that took that technology, monetized it, and generated huge economic advantage for the United States and for other nations. And I think China looks at that and says, that's what we're going to do. We're going to develop the technologies of the 21st century. So think about quantum, think about AI, think about 5G, think about biotech and nanotech. We, China, are going to develop those key technologies. We are going to get the global bodies to approve our technological standards. That gives us a competitive advantage around the world. And then we're going to develop Chinese companies that can outcompete against the Western models of the past. That broad strategy, then you see it play out in light, in ways like. So to gain that technology, we, China, we will use as traditional espionage to steal it. We'll use cyber as a vehicle to steal it in the form of intellectual property. We will develop a strategy that ties together our companies, our educational system, our national laboratories. We'll come up with a very integrated strategy from a nation state perspective that will use actually generate that advantage, acquire that technology, get it adopted by the Western, by the standard bodies, and that will create these, these huge Chinese companies to actually use it to create economic advantage for us. And so in some ways, I think the challenge then becomes for the U.S. Our model had always been, hey, look, if the government will just stay out of the way, U.S. <laughs> private industry will out-innovate and out-compete anybody else in the world. Because as a society, we've always believed that competition is a positive. It brings out the best in, in people. The challenge, I think, for us in the U.S. is that was all predicated on the idea that it was a level playing field. And I think where you find yourself now is how do individual U.S. and Western companies compete against this integrated national strategy where that Chinese company that they're competing against isn't just an individual company. It's got the full range in many cases of the capabilities of the Chinese nation state and this integrated strategy of China are right there supporting that company, helping it in a way that Western companies, just you just don't see. That's not the way we work in our society. I think we're going to have to step back and ask ourselves, do we need to revise our model? No doubt. And I, and I think, you know, if we're looking at China as a competitor and not as an enemy of the United States, we have to see that this is a competitor who doesn't play by the rules. They, they claim ignorance all the time. They operate through deception. They, they never keep their word, it seems. And, see, and, and deception is one of the key components of their strategy, their long-term strategy, their 100-year strategy. How does the United States compete both economically and militarily with a communist regime that operates on, under these auspices? I mean, how do we, because we don't operate that, like that to your point that you just made. We're not, the government doesn't help private sector by stealing IP from other companies in other countries, right? right. And this so is I don't, I mean, what, what happens? 
So number one, the answer is not to become like they are. I, I don't want to be, I don't think it's in our best interest to adopt the same exact same approach. I don't want to see the government, you know, stealing information and then providing it to the private sector. I, I would not like to see the U.S. government attempting to manipulate the citizens of other nations, as well as repressing the freedoms of its own citizens. That is not in our best interest. That is not what we want to do. But what I do think we need to do is, number one, I would argue we need a much more integrated private sector and governmental partnership. We've got to work together in ways that we just traditionally have not really been comfortable. The last time, though, I would say, in some ways, you saw that, the power of that partnership, you know, go back to the space race where we decided it was a national imperative for us. And we brought together the best of government, the best of the private sector. And, and remember, go back in history, in the beginning of the space race, uh, late 50s and the early 60s, the U.S. is perceived as being behind. The Soviets are achieving the initial successes. They are the first to put a man in space. They are the first to put a man in orbit. They are the first to actually walk in space. And yet, we were able to put together using a different framework and a different partnership, we were able to put together a model that caught up with them and then just totally surpassed them. And that in turn had some amazing economic advantages to it. Now, I'm not arguing that the answer is, well, you turn everything in our economy into a, a, a space-like effort from the 1960s. Rather, I would argue, First, we need to do assessment of what do we think are the key technologies? What do we think are the key areas that are going to be central to a nation's ability to compete economically in the digital economy of the 21st century? So we need to prioritize. In those areas, I think, because that's what the Chinese have done, in those areas that we assess are, are going to be critical to gaining advantage, that are really going to be the core technologies of the digital age, we need to step back and ask ourselves, so how can we come up with a different government and private partnership, where we take advantage of the power of the government. Look, only the government in our structure can create tax advantages to incentivize investment. Only governments can change immigration policy to allow people with particular skills or backgrounds to come here and hopefully stay here and apply those skills in support of our efforts to achieve economic competitiveness. The, the, only the government can create policies that incentivize companies in some ways, for example, benefits for investments they make in their human capital, et cetera. So it's that ability to bring it together. I don't want an approach where the government controls or directs. I don't think that's the best framework here. Rather, I'd love to have a discussion about from a private sector perspective. So what do you think are the challenges that are putting you at a disadvantage and how can the government help to even the playing field? Because in the end, as you had said, look, this is about trying to create an evening playing field. Because I think on an evening even playing field, we will compete very, very well. So I think a lot of people in the corporate sector are very ignorant regarding the, the threat that China presents to their IP and, and to their, their information um, that they use to operate their businesses. And and I, and, I, and I give you this example. I know that the, the United States government won't allow the president to stay at the Waldorf Astoria right here on Park Avenue in New York City because it's owned by, by Chinese companies. And 
I, but, but, but you have Chinese, but you have American corporations that are choosing mainland China as their offsite for their corporate board meetings and executive leadership committee meetings. What does the government know that, that apparently executives in our Fortune 500 companies do not? Well, I, I would just argue that government has come to the conclusion that particular individuals within that government structure represent an attractive target to others, and therefore there's a higher level of risk to, to us. Therefore, we, we need to use a risk-based strategy about how we allow that individual or those individuals that we assess to be so important, like a president. We've, we've said, let's step back and assess risk, and let's think about how they communicate. Let's think about where they are, who has access to them. We take a very risk-based approach, and it's just not the same in the corporate world. Now, I'm not arguing it has to be exactly the same, but it goes back to the discussion that we had in the first segment where I think in the private sector, we need to think about risk much more broadly. Um, there's, if you just look at the strategy that, that China is using from theft of intellectual property, um, co-opting of the China, Chinese uh, diaspora, when U.S. business individuals are in China, you know, monitoring them, um, theft of information when in, in some individuals when you're in China, a, attempting to use Chinese student populations around the world. Um, they're just looking at the Chinese just look at this and also the fact that it's an authoritarian nation. They are engaged in a series of activities that are designed to create advantage for them. It's not that they are inherently evil. Now, don't get me wrong, I disagree on many levels with many of the things they're doing. You look at that against the things they're doing against Uyghurs, the way they suppress their own citizens, these indoctrination and retraining camps um, that are really just nice euphemisms for imprisoning, beating, torturing, um, subjecting their own citizens to uh, ideological indoctrination within a framework of threats, violence, and intimidation. You look at what's going on in Hong Kong. There's many things where I would say, look, as a society, you are engaged, you as a government are engaged in activities that are abhorrent to a values-based democratic framework. <laughs> There's just no other way to, to, to frame it. So uh, over the last few years, we've heard a lot of you know, agreements with China uh, and the news that they are going to stop hacking us. And I saw some article recently that, oh, the Chinese attacks on, on cyber attacks on the United States have plummeted uh, because of these recent, um, you know, agreements. But according to an International Business Times magazine article that I read dated November 2nd, it's just this month, just a few weeks ago, a Chinese hacking group is reportedly utilizing malware to steal SMS messages from high-ranking government and military officials. And now this report out by FireEye, most people who listen to the show know who FireEye is, is a large cybersecurity company. Um, they revealed in their latest intelligence report that the new malware is called MessageTap. And basically, it's been used by a China-linked hacking group, APT41, to track and save SMS traffic from particular phone numbers. And in, 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 in FireEye described this China-linked hacking group the APT41 as a cybercrime and dual espionage team known to execute cyber attacks allegedly on behalf 
of the United uh, or the Chinese government since 2012, specifically on the United States government as other 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 targets. And I think you just mentioned, you know, there's other high-profile targets out there, especially in the government that they're they're looking at all the time. Now, this would seem like it doesn't really jive with all the abiding by all the recent agreements and the pinky swears that they they've given the United States to stop launching these cyber attacks against us. So how should the United States respond to revelations like this? I mean, what do we do? Where do we eventually draw the line? So first, let's be fair. The use of cyber as a tool by nation states to generate insights as to what other nations are doing is not unique to China. So the first comment I would make is we need to differentiate between activity we see directed against legitimate national security targets like the military, like government. And I think we, we need to not only be aware of that, but what the, the area that I would argue is of greater concern is this focus within the Chinese on cyber and other ways as a tool to penetrate the private sector with a view, whether that be industries, whether that be academic institutions, using cyber espionage and other things as a tool to outright steal. That is a very different thing than the traditional tools of espionage that many nations around the world use. And let's be honest, the United States does that. We never have said to the Chinese, you cannot use cyber as a tool to generate insights in a traditional espionage framework. Rather, what we've tried to say to them is, the use of cyber as a tool by the nation state to extract private information from the US and then to share that with your private sector, that is totally unacceptable to us. Put another way, in my previous life, I would be the first to admit, we were very interested in advanced aircraft technology, for example, because we wanted to understand how might other nations, to include the Chinese, used advanced aviation capabilities in military aircraft against us, the US, or our friends and allies. On the other hand, what the difference was, we would never then take that information that we gained from China and go to the Boeings of the world mm. or other aviation companies and say, here's what your competition is going to look like in five years. This is what you have to compete against. This is the technology that you can use. We don't do that in our structure. We say, hey, that's the role of the private sector. That's not, government is not here to generate the advantage for the private sector by using the tools of the nation state, espionage, cyber, and other things to do that. That's not what we do. And that was always our challenge with the Chinese. You know, stop this integrated national strategy where you're using the capabilities of the nation state, the, the People's Liberations Army, the Ministry of State Security. You're using their capabilities to steal this intellectual property to literally, you know, put at risk U.S. economic advantage, and then you're, you're giving it to your private sector. You're giving it to those large Chinese companies, those 119 that you cited. Many of them receive data directly from the Chinese government in a way that just does not happen in the U.S. or the West as a whole. You know, it's interesting. You, you, you mentioned that the United States never said that we would do the same. We wouldn't do the same thing. We just don't give the information to our companies. But is it helpful that FireEye just keeps catching China? <laughs> you know, with their hands in the cookie jar all the time. Does it help the United States in any kind of diplomatic talks or it's just, it really is irrelevant that they keep getting caught? No, I, I wouldn't say it's irrelevant. First of all, the, the first step in dealing with the problem is recognizing it. Number two, the next step is 
So give me the data, give me the information that proves my case, that proves the premise, not me, Mike Rogers, but broadly the position of the United States. So the insights generated by the intelligence structure, the law enforcement structure, um, cybersecurity firms in the private sector, those are all positive things and highlighting to the broader world so it doesn't just come across as, well, it's just the U.S. government complaining. That's just the way the Americans are. No, it's not just the government. You're seeing this from multiple independent sources who all verify the same types of activity. That, that's important in trying to, to send a message to the rest of the world that there's a problem here we gotta deal with. Also, I think there's a positive in sending to China, hey, we are aware of what you're doing, we're gonna highlight this, and we're gonna contest it. We're not gonna pretend it's not happening. We're not gonna, we just don't say anything about it. That's not gonna be the approach we take. I never liked that. I thought being passive here is not in our best interest. We need to be very public about the kinds of behaviors we're seeing. We need to contest it and we need to stand up for what we believe is right. And don't ever forget, it's our values that make that at its heart, our single greatest advantage isn't our military. It's not our economy, as important as those things are. It's the values of our society and the way we do things and the beliefs that we hold and the way we treat people, both our own citizens and others around the world. That, you know, I, I just think that that's so important to what we're doing going forward. Holding to those beliefs in the value system that we have in the United States here that you just mentioned, how, do, how does the United States work with China as China grows and matures as a country? And at the same time, ensure that they can't someday overpower us and threaten our freedoms because of the advances that they enjoyed during this time period. So I, I think what we want to try to do is highlight to them, look, we've got a series of norms of behavior and a rule-based structure that has been in place globally, broadly, for the last you know, 75 years since the post-World War II era. That structure has created tremendous economic growth. It has created great economic opportunity for individuals around the world. It's not perfect, but it's pretty damn powerful. China, number one, it's in your best interest to adhere to that framework. Number two, China, we expect you to adhere to that framework. Number three, China, when you fail to adhere to that framework, when you flout international law, when you disregard these behaviors, you will be held accountable. And it's hard. That's really what the, the, you know, you can certainly disagree with strategy, but that's really the, 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 the trade issue that's going on at the moment. This idea that, hey, look, you're playing on a, you have created an uneven, uneven playing field where you are disregarding, bypassing much of that structure that's been put in place to create economic advantage for all, not just one, or not just the strong, but was designed to try to provide benefit broadly for all. You flouted it, you disregarded it, and at times you refuse to acknowledge it and obey it, and that's not acceptable to us. We want a fair playing field. We just want the opportunity to compete and to compete fairly. We have opened our markets to you. We expect you to open your markets to us. These idea of you know, tariffs as tools to ensure that your own world has economic advantage, We've your own nation state enjoys advantage or is protected in some way. We, we've seen this before. It's been the case in our past and in America's history. We've done it at times. In general, we haven't always found that to be the best 
policy. And so we're trying to convince our Chinese counterparts, look, this is just not in your best interest. It's not in the world's best interest and it's not acceptable. And we're going to hold you accountable. Um, you know, we'll see the, the devil's always in the details, the strategy that you actually use. But I do believe that there, there is value in contesting these behaviors. And then I'd also highlight just historically, China tends to respond positively to strength. They tend to view weakness as opportunity. So a strategy that just tries to deny any of this, a strategy that pretends it's not an issue, I think the Chinese will perceive that as weakness and will perceive that as, aha, we we can continue to press here. We can be even more aggressive. That's not in our best interest. So even in the recent trade talks that the administration has, has had with China, it's been reported that the cybersecurity uh, issues and the, the cybersecurity concerns around the attacks in, uh, on our infrastructure, uh, the constant stealing of IP that we talked about, has been a top of a conversation in those trade talks. What does a smart cybersecurity strategy look like as it relates to China? And how does it affect these other verticals and all these other discussions in this geopolitical politics? So I, I, again, there's no one single answer. I think it's a combination of, number one, you want to make it hard for anyone or harder for anyone. It doesn't matter if it's China, Russia. You want to make it harder for anyone to be able to, su- to successfully penetrate. So that goes to whether our, it's in our roles as individuals, our roles as companies, in the private sector, as institutions like universities or the governments. The first part of this, this strategy has to be we have got to increase our basic level of cybersecurity. And that's not just technology. The hardest part about cybersecurity is not technology. He's a guy who did this in the government and was responsible, you know, working with others to and try to secure the cybersecurity of the Department of Defense, the largest department in the executive branch, you know, with millions of users operating in environments all over the world, some fixed, some mobile, some at large places, some in very small, out of the way, incredibly isolated locations. The ability for us to operate and ensure the security of our information, not an easy challenge. But on the other hand, the first component of the strategy has to be we got to make it harder. The, the last point I wanted to make, and I apologize, I drift a little bit there for a minute, was the hardest part isn't technology. I, I, I used to tell my bosses, from the nation's leaders on down was the hardest part in all of this is changing behavior and culture. It's not changing technology. Because in the end, you have the greatest technology and the best cyber strategy in the world. But if you've got a poorly informed user community, if you've got a user community that sees no correlation between the actions they make and the ability of the organization to defend itself in cyber, if you can't make that connection, if you can't teach, train, educate that workforce to understand that the things they do individually are a massive component of our ability to actually defend ourselves from a cyber perspective, you'll never get anywhere, but it's the hardest part of all. So in addition to making it harder, the second part needs to be, we also need to change potential adversaries' risk calculus. At the moment, most nations, I believe, tend to view cyber as a tool, or many nations tend to view cyber, certainly the Chinese and the Russians do, cyber as a tool that offers them lower risk. Hey, I can use this. I can use it to gain advantage, whether that advantage being stealing information, whether that advantage being using cyber as a tool to place certain critical infrastructure, power, and other things at risk by penetrating it and potentially being able to manipulate it in a time of crisis or confrontation. 
the ability to use cyber as a tool to negate some of the significant U.S. military advantage we have. Um, you know, we have got to convince them that doing those things, in fact, do represent risk to them, that they need to stop and think about what they're doing, that in fact, it's not less risky, it potentially incurs greater risk. That's changing their risk calculus. What, what would you um, say to people components to do that? What, what would you say to people who say that we're in a cyber war with China? I, look, I, I would say I, I would not define it as a war. I certainly describe it as we are in a cyber competition with a host of nations around the world to, in, to include China, that the dynamics of that competition are nothing like our perceptives of what normal peacetime day-to-day -day activity is, that in the cyber world, <laughs> we're at a very different level of competition. I won't say that in all cases, I wouldn't describe it broadly as a war, because remember, a war is by definition a politically defined event defined by a nation state. and We haven't really tripped that threshold yet in terms of the formal long-term standing things. But on the other hand, it does beg the question, so what does war look like within the cyber arena? What are its components? What's its nature? How do we respond to it? Put another way, in my previous life, I can remember being in the White House sit room many times and saying, if this is peacetime, I would hate to think what cyber is going to look like in wartime, because I will tell you the level of activity, you know, given the mission I was given, the level of activities that we're seeing every day, this is not at the current pace, this is not sustainable. It forces us both within the government and in the private sector, we're spending billions of dollars, yet we're not changing the opponent's risk calculation. It's purely defensive. We're just responding to their activities. I want to rather shape their behavior. I want to convince them that this is not in their best interest. I want to get them to stop and think about what they're doing, to believe that in fact there's a price to pay for this. Because if we don't change that dynamic, we're just gonna continue to be in the responsive arena and we're just gonna pour hundreds of billions of dollars into this and, and we won't change the dynamic and that's not a good strategy. Hell, we put the Soviets on the wrong end of the cost equation. And in the end, we broke them economically and then they, they fractured politically. I don't want any of that, to, that's not the side of the equation we want to be on. But if we don't change this dynamic, if we're not careful, that's where we're gonna wind up. So we're running a little bit long, but I can't help myself. I gotta ask you one more question before we go to a break. I wanna ask you about Huawei and, and how the use of this technology by our allies and that sort of, and they have a different stance on, on Huawei as that the United States does. How does that impact the five I relationship in your, in your view? So again, it goes to go back to the first segment where I talked about one of the two concerns I had as I left government was we didn't understand the national security implications of technology. Mm -hmm. 5G and Huawei is a really good poster child for this phenomenon because potentially we, in this highly interconnected world in which we all now live from a technological and economic standpoint, we've created also intelligence and security relationships where we're all very much integrated and intertwined. That's really the heart of the Five Eyes idea, that this, the United Kingdom, the United States, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, because of our history, because of our values, because of our, strategic, our common strategic outlook and broad common set of national interests, that there's value in us creating this tight, highly integrated intelligence, military, and national security framework. 
Well, the challenge gets to be, so in this highly integrated world that we've created, I'll only focus on the intelligence piece. So we've created this highly integrated world. And yet now potentially technology represents something that could be a threat to that. Does one nation or some subset of the five develop a technology that we, or employ a technology or a capability or an actor, in this case it was Huawei, that in fact is viewed as a potential threat by the others? How do we make this work? My argument about Huawei is I would focus less on the company and I'd step back and ask yourself, what this is about to me is how do you as a nation ensure your economic competitiveness and your economic advantage in the 21st century. And one of the questions I would ask myself was, are you comfortable with an authoritarian state whose legal framework and stated strategy is to use companies in many ways as an extension of the government? Does that make you comfortable in employing technology from some of those companies in areas in this highly integrated structure we're creating. Are you comfortable with that? I would argue in some areas I'd say yes. I think the risk is relatively low and it's reasonable. In other areas, I would say there's no way I would want this in there. Hmm. Take a look and 5G is the poster child to me. 5G is not just better cell phone service. 5G creates a network structure when it's fully in place that removes latency, increase in thus increasing speed, massive increase in data rates, and data in multiple formats that literally turns portable, mobile, handheld devices, as well as others. It gives them a range of capabilities that we've never seen before. In this autonomous world that we're creating, the power of that ability to manage, to use with safety a lot of this autonomy, is the fact that you've got a network backbone that has constant connectivity, amazing speed, and massive data load. That's what 5G is. 5G is going to be the building block for a whole host of other technologies besides just the ability to make better quality phone calls. That means that 5G becomes a fundamental building block for the, a nation's ability to compete economically and to ensure its own security in the digital age. Therefore, I would say we should step back and have a conversation. In key technologies like 5G, how comfortable are we with having components from companies who come from an authoritarian state whose legal regime, in this case China, says, hey, guess what? I can compel any company within my nation to provide any data that I want, any access that I want in the time and place of my choosing. There's no independent verification from a court. There's no legal framework to appeal or argue that that's a bad choice that I shouldn't have to implement. None of that exists in an authoritarian state. That just is a lot of risk to me in some areas. So I tell people focus less on Huawei and more on the broader, what's the, what kind of framework are we gonna be comfortable with here? Because today it's Huawei, Coming down the road, as you look at other technologies, it'll be other companies. This is not unique to Huawei. All right, I'm a Rogers. We've got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors. But don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from our special guest, the former head of the United States National Security Agency, Admiral Michael Rogers. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, former head of the United States Cyber Command, Admiral Michael Rogers. So, Admiral, I'd like to talk to you about a few different things in this segment about cyber risk. And first, I'd like to ask you, 
what criteria would you use to evaluate the cyber risk to our telecommunications infrastructure? Um, I mean, a pretty broad, broad question. When you're looking at the risk broadly, um, you know, part of it is it's a pretty integrated, unlike power, for example, which was built up over time and then kind of all thrown together. So it was never created as a single integrated whole in many ways. Over time, the, the telecommunications backbone, for example, is a much more integrated one in many ways than some other aspects of critical infrastructure in the United States. That both is a positive because it gives you greater cost efficiency, speed, and more capability. But the flip side is it means that the potential impact, if someone gain, gains access, is able to manipulate, can potentially, and I say potentially because it all varies on the particulars of the scenario, can potentially be fairly significant uh, across a broad spectrum. So as we're trying to figure out, so how are we going to deal with this risk? The other point that I would make is I think the telecommunication sector is an area where the corporate sector, the, the corporate entities have done a good job of trying to come together as a whole to figure out how to work problem sets. That's not true for all aspects of critical infrastructure. Um, I, I would argue finance is another area. The financial structure has also done a good job of trying to come together. On the other hand, you look at areas like healthcare, and we are, I look at healthcare and I go, wow, we are way behind the power curve in this segment. It's not integrated. There's little broad, not that people aren't trying, but we've got this massive concentration of personally identifiable information, as well as we're putting more and more remotely connected devices. We're creating them from tools that we use in hospitals, doctor's offices, laboratories, to physical components we are installing in human bodies that are remotely connected. People will, you know, we're building technology that allows you to remotely monitor and remotely access a pacemaker, for example. Now, we do that because we think it provides great benefit. But the flip side is that benefit can be employed against us. So the risk equation is just, it differs by sector. You know, we're here, it's interesting that we're talking about sectors and, you know, and, and in some way, how they compare in their defense and the security posture. And I think, you know, to some degree, even the term defense and death has been challenged recently in terms of, you know, successful cybersecurity models. But how about energy and, and, and that sector, specifically our, our uh, electrical grids? There's so much conversation out there about the vulnerability of our electrical grids and how simple attacks could take out power to massive amounts of people and millions of people. Uh, All right. So I think first let's start with the positives. Um, there's a widespread recognition of the problem and the sector is actively talking, investing and working to try to address the issues. Secondly, because it wasn't built, as I said, as an integrated whole. Well, I think you could certainly have regional and area impact it becomes much more difficult to have nationwide impact. That's a positive. The downside is, so those are the positives to me broadly, not the only ones, but they're the first ones that come to mind. The challenges to me are you've got very, in some areas, you've got very antiquated structures. 
cybersecurity was never a key component of their design or implementation. It gets to be really challenging at times trying to deal with some of this old infrastructure from hardware to, to software. Secondly, and I would say it's not just for electricity, but energy writ large. Much of the cyber activity we've seen to date has really been focused in the IT world, penetrating systems to access data, whether that's for ransomware purposes, hey, I'm going to access this data, download a ransomware program, and I'm going to lock it down and then extort you to pay me to get your data unlocked so you can regain access to your data. You're going to have to pay me. I'm going to extort you. Um, what I think you're, you've seen it in some cases already, there have been a couple cases in Europe, for example, but you're going to see more of is the same kind of idea shifting into the world of OT. This idea that this, these industrial control systems and SCADA systems that we put in place to remotely monitor, control, and operate complex systems like pipelines, manufacturing, production lines, you're gonna watch, you'll see people start to use cyber as a tool to put those at risk, whether you do it for criminal purposes, as I often remind companies, if you think you'll pay a lot for your data, think about how much you'll pay if somebody comes in and says, I have locked down your production capability. If you want to make cars, if you want to actually operate that production line, you're going to have to pay me because I've locked it down. Um, I think that's going to be, you're going to see more in that arena, unfortunately. Um, as I said, you've seen that already, but you're going to see more coming up in that area. So the positive side is energy is working on it. The other challenge for the energy sector, it's a regulated sector. So many companies will say, look, in order to get the funding, the resources I need to make these investments, I'm a regulated industry. I gain revenue through the rates I charge for this power. Those rates are controlled by a regulatory body. I just can't arbitrarily raise rates to generate revenue that gives me the money I need to invest in new infrastructure, better cybersecurity. I have to make a case to a regulatory board. That was always one of the challenges in the energy sector that some other sectors don't necessarily have to the same level. So how do we manage the cyber risk that social media and some of these other technologies introduce into our society by influencing the masses and pitting United States citizens against one another? Right. Yeah. So I, I think first, it, it's interesting to me, in print and in television, we came to the conclusion that there was value in creating a broad level of standards to ensure accuracy of information and broad professional standards. And, and we actually made those requirements for print and for television. On the other hand, for social media, our initial position was, we don't need to do any of that. Hey, just leave it alone. No regulation, no standards, no minimal professional requirements. And you had many providers, Facebook and others, whose initial position seemed to be, hey, look, we're a provider. We're a content. We host, we are a content host. We don't generate content. Our users do. We have no responsibility to ensure the accuracy of identity or the veracity of accuracy of the information that these users are posting or presenting. I think as we've watched 
actors attempt to use that social media framework, its openness, as a vehicle to sow discord, discontent, to attempt to undermine our society, as you've said, to pit our citizens against each other, to inflame issues that are highly controversial, highly contentious, to attempt to inflame those. I think we need to step back and say, so does that kind of hands-off process, is that really in our best interest? Hey, what is the responsibility of the host, you know, the platform builder, so to speak? What is their responsibility with respect to ensuring accuracy of identity, accuracy of information? We took a, a very different approach in print and media. I would argue, we ought to ask ourselves, how can we take that some components of what we did in print and media and apply it in the social media world? That, in fact, we have to acknowledge that this is a capability that is so important to us as a free and open society, but at the same time, we're dealing in a world in which people are, are using that freedom against us, if you will. So rather than just get rid of those freedoms, I would never propose we do that. I would propose, though, that we need to take a different approach about responsibility, standards, ensuring accuracy of identity. Are there some processes that we can put in place as we do in print and in television, for example, with respect to accuracy and standards? We do it there. I I am perplexed at times as to why we think that social media is so different. So how do we deter bad actors at scale without international laws and norms in cyberspace that mandate more cooperation between countries for these violations? How do we, how do, we do that and still accomplish you know, law and order in cyberspace? Right, so we highlight their behavior. We cause a measure of pain or embarrassment. That, now, you got a lot of different tools to do that. It, uh, one of the things I always said in government was, look, just because somebody comes at us in cyber doesn't mean that the default response has to be from us. Hey, we're going to go back and do the exact same thing to you. My attitude always was, step back, let's ask ourselves, so what are the advantages, what is the full range of capability that we could apply against this particular adversary as a way to change their behavior? Not, hey, they, they did X to us, so we're going to do the exact same thing back to them. I never thought that that was the smartest way to do business. I thought, hey, we can be smarter than that. We can play to our broader strengths because we do enjoy a whole range of strengths and capabilities well beyond cyber compared to many other nations. And we are able to generally, um, a little challenging in a world in which we seem to be focusing more on us than the values of allies and partners in some ways. But you know, doing things in a framework with others has generally proven to be pretty powerful for us historically. I think, again, that's another advantage our Chinese and and Russian counterparts don't really have. They don't have a strong series of friends and allies around the world in the way that we, the United States, and we, the West, more broadly do. That's a huge advantage for us. I want to increase that advantage. I don't want to tear it down. I want to take advantage of it. You know, you just mentioned Russia again. And, and in March of last year, the CEO of FireEye, Kevin Mandia, was on CNBC. And I was watching the interview. And he was asked that if the United States and Russia had a cyber war, who would win? And he said that Russia would win. And 
I want to know it, what your opinion about that is. If a cyber war broke out between the United States and Russia, would the United States really lose? So my first comment would be, I suspect, could well be wrong, but I suspect a conflict that starts out as a cyber war between nations is not likely to stay cyber only for very long particularly if one side believes that it is gaining advantage in that war, in that conflict. That whoever thinks they're behind or losing is likely to start to look at, so, hey, how do I expand this beyond cyber? So I, I always try to remind people, look, cyber exists in a broader strategic context. So always when we were thinking about cyber, I said, think about the broader strategic context. It will help explain why, in some cases, we're seeing these behaviors in cyber. It'll help us understand who are the actors, what's their strategy, what are they trying to achieve, how does this kind of tactical activity, if you will, that we're seeing, how does it fit into the bigger picture? So I, I always tried to remind the teams I was a part of, you got to think about cyber more broadly. So this idea of, hey, if we had a cyber you know, only, I, think, mm, I doubt that this would say cyber only for very long, particularly if one of the two parties felt that they were at a disadvantage, I think their inclination would be, well, I'll bring some other capabilities online. So I just don't think it's the most accurate characterization of how a conflict is likely to work out. And now don't take from that that I don't think or acknowledge that cyber is going to be a key compart or a key part of both day-to-day -day competition as well as if we actually got into crisis or worse, outright conflict with another nation or entity, cyber is in all of those range, in that full range we just went through, cyber is going to be a, a key component. But I always encourage people, please don't view cyber in isolation. Emma Rogers, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us this evening. I know you're really busy. I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us and, and talking to us about these issues. I really appreciate it. I hope to have you back. Well, hey, thanks for the opportunity. But to your listeners, I mean, these are tough challenges. There's no easy answer. There's no easy answers. And there's probably no one single answer to most of these challenges. But in the end, it's going to be our ability to come together as a team, whether you're in the government, whether you're in the private sector and in industry, whether you're working in the academic world, whether you're uh, a potential partner in another nation in another part of the world. Look, it's our ability to come together. That's going to be our, 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 what's actually going to work out. And the future to me is always about integrated partnerships. I, I believe that strongly. You know, when I was at NSA and Cyber Command, I always used to tell the team, look, it's about bringing together integrated partnerships. That's the key to the future. We got to take multiple disciplinary approaches to these problems and we got to work as teams. We got to acknowledge we don't always have all the insight and all the capability and we should value the perspective of others. And with that, hey, thanks very much for the opportunity. Hey, thanks so much, folks. We're going to leave it with that. But before we go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. 
Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 